Maurice Wilson was ambitious. There's no question about that. He, from an early age, was driven to succeed. He made a decision to learn to fly and set the goal of being the first person to climb Everest. And he had disdain for the large government-sponsored expeditions that were mounted to climb Everest and the other big mountains of the world. On the surface, it seemed that Maurice had little in common with others that dreamed of climbing Everest. But is that true? Or is it something we are assuming because of his unorthodox ways of preparing for his trip? Would the preparations of other climbers be different than Maurice's? Clearly, other climbers had more experience, and that alone gave them a better chance of success. But what about the logistics? Maurice made meticulous plans and went about very pragmatically to execute those plans. In an expedition, the workload is divided amongst the entire team. Everything that goes into an expedition also goes into a solo attempt. Maurice had to travel to Nepal and to Everest, not a small undertaking today, and a monumental effort in 1933. Expeditions back in the day used land, sea, and air travel to get their equipment and personnel to Everest. Maurice had to make the same trip, but had found an alternate method of travel to get him to the same place. But for a second, let's take logistics and mountaineering experience out of the equation. What is the drive that exists in climbers, and, and some people for that matter, that want to test themselves in the most extreme conditions? Has the mindset of people today that want to travel to extreme places and do extreme activities changed? What about climbers today versus climbers of the early 20th century? Aside from fitness and preparation, what is the motivation? That desire to prepare for and embark on something that you know is dangerous, difficult, uncomfortable, and potentially deadly is something many spend their lives trying to avoid. We build escalators so we don't have to walk stairs. We have power steering in cars so the steering wheel turns easily. We have microwave ovens so we don't have to wait for even the simplest meal. We buy coffee at shops instead of pouring our own hot water over coffee grounds. Yet there are still people out there who strive to push themselves into harm's way to achieve something that they feel is greater than themselves. They aren't doing it for fame or money. Most of the extreme physical achievements happening today go unnoticed by the general public. The only way to learn of some of these achievements is if you stumble upon a specialty blog or online magazine. When the news media does cover something extreme, they do it in a way with a kind of a slanted smile and a wink as if to say, these people are crazy. Why would anyone want to do this? So what is it that pushes that very small minority of people to go well beyond what they even themselves are not sure they are capable of? In my life as a filmmaker, I've come to know a lot of people who take on challenges that mean nothing to anyone but themselves. They push their bodies and minds to the breaking point, or at least what I, looking from the outside, believe would be my breaking point. These folks get genuinely excited when talking about things that to me just seem really, really hard and frankly miserable. But I think one thing that adventurers have had throughout history is curiosity. It seems it's even less about the success than it is about their curiosity and in testing themselves to actually find their own personal breaking point. All the athletes I've spoken to over the years have one thing in common. 
It's about the experience and the process. It's rare to find someone like Maurice who so openly feels that the success lies solely in the successful completion of the goal. For most, the attraction is the challenge and the testing of oneself. I've known a few people over the years that have spent their lives as extreme athletes, and in this episode, I wanted to share a conversation I had with a close friend of mine. We talked over the years about these subjects and the motivation and unrelenting desire to push hard towards a goal. Let me give you a little bit of background before I play this conversation. I met Anna many years ago in the meadow at the base of El Capitan in Yosemite. We would see each other every year in Yosemite during the spring and fall climbing seasons. And One day we sat down in Yosemite's El Capitan meadow and I recorded this discussion for a web series I was producing at the time. There's a bit of technical information I want to clarify. She talks about Mount Asgard on Baffin Island being 40 pitches long. A pitch is essentially a rope length, and a rope's roughly 200 feet long. Mount Asgard is over 6,000 feet high. And when she talks of climbing the nose in a day to train, the nose is a 3,200-foot route up Yosemite's El Capitan. The average climber takes four days to make this climb. Anna used it as a training route and did the route in one day. Anna was, at the time of this discussion, at the absolute top of her climbing game. She was pushing hard and pushing limits for her personal goals. It wasn't easy to get Anna to talk about her accomplishments. She was very, very humble. It took a week to convince her to sit down with me and allow me to record this discussion. I would ask you to listen closely to the language and the feelings that Anna expresses. I realized I could have been talking to Maurice Wilson or... George Mallory, or any climber who had dreams of big mountains and monumental challenges. There's a tone and a language that comes from people who seek the high and wild, and that that includes Maurice Wilson. There seems to be a common drive and a universal fire in these extreme athletes to accomplish something that is really, really hard. This is Anna Smith. My name is Anna Smith. And I'm from uh, Golden, BC, Canada. Discovering climbing was, for me, probably a multifaceted thing. Uh, I, a previous partner of mine was a gym boulderer, and he used to take me to the gym, and we used to pull on plastic, and I thought, there is something wrong with you people. This is not fun at all. I spend my time in sign, and I don't understand. And then, then I started to trail run. And then I discovered my own personal truth to climbing, which is the high and the wild places. The places that you are dependent on you and your partner's decisions. And those decisions mean life or death, really, when you get down to it. Um, And the beauty of those places and how blessed we are that that's a part of our lives, that we can reach out and access that. I think that's fantastic. And so for me, it was discovering that high and that wild and that mighty area that blew my mind and this is what I want to do. Okay, Anna, I know you just climbed nose in a day. Tell me about what climbing nose in a day was about. Climbing the nose in a day for me was about trying. It was about trying to see how fast I could go, how hard I could go, how much I could really push into exhaustion because, you know, let's think about where I'm going in two weeks. That's a portion of a mountain. That's you know, a little less, little more than two-thirds of Mount Asgard. 
Mount Asgard, we're talking 40 full pitches. Um, and so for, for me to understand that I could deal with that level of exertion for so long was pretty paramount. What, is it, what does El Capitan mean to Canadian climbers? To Canadian climbers, El Cap and the valley itself are pretty legendary. I think they're legendary all over the world, right? Um, I'd heard about this place long before I ever came. And I came for the first time with a partner who was a much stronger climber than I was. And I, I got to experience Yosemite in a way that I couldn't have given it to myself. And so it's been a real gift to be back as a better and stronger climber, as someone who can actually, you know, hold their own within their own party. And the valley, the valley has a kind of mystique and an aura to it that's really difficult to get anywhere else. Tell me about bonds or, you know, relationships you've made with people that live here or here when you climb. This is my first extended road trip um, and the characters that I've met along the way some of them I met prior to the valley and I've re-encountered here some of them I met here in the valley but they're all I, I feel like I'm very blessed they're all very powerful individuals they're people who just kind of leap off the page at you in their personality right they're people that you want to engage with and to know better and they're people who inspire right and there are these people who climb really quietly and really confidently and there are people who just throw themselves into it with everything they have and both of those are incredibly inspiring right all of these people that I've met and that I've gotten to learn from and to climb with they've all brought something new to the way we all the way I live my life and the way I climb tell me about El Cap Bridge and what that is to climbers as a community El Cap Bridge <laughs> It's a place that you can't walk three feet without seeing someone. The meadow itself, the meadow was one of my first places I came to when I first came here. Uh, we came and we got straight on Half Dome, came off, walked into the meadow for our rest day and ran into no less than four people, uh, including our mutual friend, uh, who I hadn't seen in a long time or who my partner hadn't seen in a long time. And it was, it's always a good reminder to understand just how integrated our community is, however geographically dispersed we are. So tell us now about your next adventure, which is, tell us who the grant provider is and where you're going and what you're going to do. I am, I'm grateful and thrilled to be going to Baffin Island uh, with another woman named Michelle Kaditz, who's a young female alpine gun in the Rockies. Uh, we are grateful for the funding from the Alpine Club of Canada and all the support from Mountain Equipment Co-op. Uh, these are the people that made this a reality for us. And so Michelle and I fly north in early July. We go by plane from Calgary to Ottawa, Ottawa to Iqaluit, and then from Iqaluit by a small plane to a town called Pang Nertung. And then from Pang we stop, we hang out in the local parks office, we have a polar bear briefing, a park briefing, and then we go by boat up the Overlord Strait, and we get out of the boat, and it leaves us there, and we're on our own, and we're walking 40 to 60k to where the gear cache is, which I placed in March, um, and then we're on our own for 26 days under the mountain, which is terrifying. Uh, the Scott route is 40 pitches of about 11 minus up Mount Asgard. 
uh, it's going to be our acclimatization route. It's going to be our introduction to the area. Um, it's, uh, it's an entirely free climb. It's at an accessible grade for us. It's the iconic peak of the area. We chose it because we thought it was something that, given a weather window, we were really certain we could get done. Um, and after the Scott route, hopefully, we get a few more weather windows and we have a couple of options and ideas which might take us elsewhere. What does it mean to be a female team to go after a Baffin Island route? To be a female team going after a Baffin Island route, I, I don't know that there has been a female duo that has gone before. I don't know that there has been a team comprised only of women. So I, I, don't, think it's a, I don't think it's a small deal for me or for Michelle. I think we both understand that this is maybe the biggest thing that either of us have ever done. Um, and that it's going to come with its own set of challenges. And our, our lack of collective experience is all the more reason that we need to be really careful and really pedantic and plan as much as we can and cross our T's and dot our I's because if we, play, we have to play all of our cards right in order to be successful. Do you have any expectations or preconceived ideas about what this route's going to be? I don't think anything particularly specific about what the route will be. Um, I think both of us expect an isolation, which I don't think we've either felt before. Um, I think we expect a level of challenge within that route at 40, 40 pitches, um, which will again be something wholly new to both of us. You know, who, who has access to roots this big other than here in the valley? Give us a very brief description of your mom and what your mom thinks about your back. <laughs> <laughs> your back uh, for my mother's birthday last year, I sat around and I thought, what does my mother want? She's a, she's a woman in her mid-60s. You know, she doesn't want the things that I can afford to give her. Um, and so I printed off a photograph from a previous mixed climbing adventure and on the back I wrote good for one veto of an ill-advised vertical adventure and I showed up to her dinner party her and her friends she took it out of its envelope and she said I love this I'm keeping it she's been wholly supportive of the Baffin adventure she has yet to try and use her veto card uh, and um, she you know she's, she's quite proud I think just tell us briefly about your accident and the recovery of that and then that motivation to, to move you right to the Baffin Island adventure. Most people would take that injury and go, your career's over. You seem to take that injury with a very different thing. So tell us briefly about what happened to you and how you got from there to where you are now going to Baffin Island. I, uh, I took a 15 meter fall to a rock ledge. Uh, I broke my pelvis and I went back two or three months later and reclimbed the same route. It was, uh, it was a little bit of an emotional trip to get back there. It wasn't, it wasn't an easy thing in my tiny little head. I, I, don't, I don't think it's the particular thing that you're climbing that makes a difference. I think it's the climbing itself. I think it's the physical and mental puzzle that puts together how you get up something, which is so individual for all of us. For all of us, it's something different. It's a different driver. It's a different 
piece of the puzzle. And for me, it's a, it's a focus, especially when it's run out or when it's consequential or when there's, when bad actually has a very bad outcome. Um, everything just kind of tucks right down into that five and a half foot box. And that's when it all makes the most sense. When it's just one foot and one hand and one foot and one hand. And the idea of consequence goes because it has to go because you can't bother with it. And I think it's, I think it's one of the things that we're blessed with the most in our lives because socially we tend to have our choices made for us by our society, by our culture, by our friends, by our partners, by our parents. And people make decisions kind of five, ten, twenty years out. And all of a sudden you're reduced to your most basic and elemental self. And I think that's worthwhile. When I hurt myself, I think a large portion of it was due in part to arrogance and in part to ignorance. I think I didn't really believe that it would happen to me. Um, and I look back at some of the things that I did and I look at them now and I think, oh my God, girl, that was stupid. Um, so essentially I, I played the cards. I played them and I played them repetitively and they came up one day. So I, I got a cheap lesson. I took a 15 meter fall to a rock ledge in the Alpine. I'm lucky to be here. I'm lucky to be walking, let alone doing what I'm doing. And I think it was a cheap way of reminding me that no one's immortal, no one's invincible. We're all here to learn from our bad choices and make better ones. And so there was never really a doubt in my mind that I was ever not going to come back to this. It was just a work in progress and a... It's always a work in progress. It's always a work in progress. There's always another goal over there. So I, I think it's a very organic thing. I think it was just simply an experience which really coalesced all the goals and all the drive that I have and all the things that I think I might one day want to do. Anna was successful on her trip to Baffin Island and further established herself as a rising star in the game of remote big mountain climbing. In 2016, Anna and a partner were awarded the Mug Stump Award, a very prestigious grant that would help her and her partner fund an attempt at climbing Brahmasar 2 on the Indian side of the Himalaya. Brahmasar 2 is 19,000 feet high and in a very, very remote location. Anna and I had been talking about her trip for several months. Skype calls and emails were a weekly thing. On her last call before her trip, she told me she was very nervous about this trip and was having bad feelings. I listened to her and didn't try to say things would be okay. I knew that Himalayan climbing was risky, and nervousness and fear are and should be normal. Anna died on that trip. She was 31 years old. She passed away in her sleep at a high-altitude base camp from complications of a medical condition. I miss her infectious laugh and her take-no-prisoner approach to climbing and the 
the fierce determination that made her one of the elite climbers in the world and also made her one of the best friends you could possibly have. I'm just like my old man, he told me so. Lying on his deathbed watching the picture show. The product of the night, the bottle and some smoke. A boomer's tricks in a woman's Just so